Isaiah chapter 7, and it would be valuable for you um, to put your finger or bookmark Matthew chapter 1 as well. Uh, You can't really preach as a Christian Isaiah chapter 7 without preaching Matthew chapter 1. And um, again, like I said earlier, we're walking through this season of Advent. Uh, If you didn't know, Advent is a word that simply means the arrival of a significant person or event. And uh, I can think of no other arrival, no more of a significant person, no more of a significant event than Jesus actually coming to this earth over 2,000 years ago. And that's what we're celebrating, that's what we're remembering. Um, Every Christmas, we remember this, that in John chapter 1, John tells us that Jesus is the eternal word of God and he was made flesh, that he's eternal God and he has become a man. And and while we rejected God and we desired to move away from him, God has drawn near to us. He's drawn near to us and honestly, nearer than we could ever dream or imagine. He's drawn near to us. And because Jesus came the first time, guys, we now look back to his first advent at Christmas that we're celebrating, and we always look ahead to the second advent that he's going to come again, and we do this with hope, just like Nate and Becca shared. This reality creates this hope within us, that no matter what you're walking through, you can have hope this morning because of this. Um, I don't know about you, but telling this Christmas story every year, it's just so important. We need the repetition. Like, we absolutely need this repetition Uh, kind of because we're storytellers, uh, just by nature of who we are as people. But also, if you stop telling stories, you forget them. You forget them. Um, If you hadn't noticed, uh, Christmas is kind of all about repetition, isn't it? It's all about repetition. Every year, you eat the same cookies, at least I do, right? I've been eating the same cookies for 35 years, it feels like, right? Uh, You put up the same decorations, whether you even like them or not right? You put these decorations back up. You listen to the same Christmas albums that you've always had, or maybe your parents listen to. So, I mean, for me, I listen to people like Tennessee Ernie Ford and Sandy Patty and Michael W. Smith, and I don't even like those people. But every year, Christmas comes around, and I'm like, well, that's what I listened to as a kid. So it's like this nostalgic, yeah, I'll I'll listen to that stuff again, you know? You, You go to the same places every year. You might go to Peacock Lane, or if you're from this valley, you might go to the Pastega Lights, you know, out by the fairgrounds every year, right? Or um, in our home, I don't know about you, but we love Christmas movies, so we watch the same movies every year. Home Alone, watched that one last night with the kids. You know, at some point, me and my wife will watch Family Stone. We like that one. And of course, being maybe the most passionate Nick Cage fan in the world, Family Man always makes the cut every December. I love Family Man, right? Christmas is all about repetition, it seems, Um, But I suggest to you that the reason for that is not merely nostalgia, right? But because we actually need every year to re-ingrain in ourselves, to reimagine, and to wonder again at the story of what's actually happening, right? Because if we don't, we'll forget it over time, and we will cease to understand how essential and life-altering this story actually is for you. We will forget what Christmas means. So what does Christmas mean? What, 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 what must we never forget? We must never forget what Christmas means is that God is with us. He's with us. You see, there are parts of the Bible and there are parts of the gospel uh, that are really hard to believe. Not because it's cheap and small, but because it's uh, audacious and glorious. 
And this is one of those things. You don't struggle to believe this because it's cheap and small. You and I struggle to believe this this morning and let it affect our lives because it's so audacious. It's, it's hard to even imagine. This is one of those things. But honestly, guys, if this wraps around your heart a bit today and during this month, uh, it, it, like, like a wrapping paper does around a present or a warm blanket does around you in a cold house in the morning, right? Like wrap around you in that sort of way. That'll change your life. It really will. And so this morning in these two passages, Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1, I just want us to consider two simple things, what Christmas means and how it practically changes your life. That's where we're headed this morning, just looking at what Christmas means and how it practically changes your life. So what does Christmas mean? I'll read it again. It says in verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Um, there's a lot going on here in the entire book of Isaiah. You could spend your life studying this book and you would never, hopefully, I, I don't think, get bored with it. Um, but there's a lot happening here. And what's interesting about a book like Isaiah is it's a prophetic literature. So it's often talking about things that are happening here and now. There's a real context. There's real life events that are happening when this is being promised. But oftentimes, the things that are being talked about have some effect in the present moment, but they have a, a much longer view in what it's talking about. This is definitely one of those things, but it definitely applies to what's happening here. There's a lot going on here. There's this guy Ahaz. He's the king of Judah. And what's taken place is Judah has split off from Israel. There's these, these two rivaling nations, and, and he's really stressed out because the nation of Israel has kind of teamed up with the nation of Syria, and they're out to get Ahaz, they're out to get Judah. And what they want to do is they want to take over Judah, they want to dethrone Ahaz, and they want to set up their own sort of puppet king, right? And Ahaz catches word of this, and he's really stressed out. It tells you that in verse 3. And so God sends Isaiah and Isaiah's son out to find Ahaz. You can see that in verse 3. And they come out to him, and they say basically, hey, Ahaz, don't even worry about this. I know you're terrified that these nations are going to come in. They're going to dethrone you. They're going to, they're going to take over. But um, God is going to protect you. All right, don't worry. He, he, he tells them this amazing thing in verses 7 through 9, that, that God is going to protect and preserve his people, right? He doesn't need to be afraid. And Ahaz doesn't believe this promise, though. And we know this because God says to Ahaz, through his prophet Isaiah, he says, all right, Ahaz, what sign do you want that it's going to happen? What sign do you want? And Ahaz tries to sound all super spiritual. And he goes, oh, I don't want to test the Lord. That's what he says, right? In verse 12, I, I will not test the Lord. He's, he's trying to sound super spiritual, but God sees through it. You can see this because God basically rebukes him. See, what's happening is God is giving him a sign in the midst of his fear, saying, I, don't worry, I'm going to protect you. And, and I'll give you a sign. What sign do you want? It could be anything. And he rejects the sign. Basically, Ahaz is saying, I, I, I'm refusing to trust in God. I'm going I'm to figure out my own way to manage my fearful situation, and I'm not going to receive this sign. He's rejecting God. He wants to, to discover this whole thing and figure it out on his own. If you're really interested in this kind of stuff, you can read 2 Kings, and you'll see all this different stuff that Ahaz is doing to try to protect himself and do, you know, protect himself in his own way and, and kind of push God out. 
He's, he's refusing to believe God. Well, what's God's response? He's like, well, I'm going to give you a sign anyways. Even though you're not going to ask for it, I'm going to give you a sign. What's his sign? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. See, here's the thing, guys. For centuries, Jewish religious leaders and scholars remembered and knew this prophecy. But they had not thought that it would really something that you should take literally. Right? They, they believed it was predicting the coming of some great leader through somehow their work. Figuratively speaking, God would be present with his people. That stuff would happen and people would go, oh yeah, God is with us. Right? But that was what it wasn't meant to be taken in a very real sort of literal way. It was meant to be taken in a sort of a detached kind of way. It'd be, it'd be kind of like this, okay? Um, Trent, you're, you're one of my all-time favorite people. I tell people this all the time, okay? Trent's probably some of your, your guys in this room all-time favorite people. I love Trent Thompson, okay? And uh, not in the way Bonnie does, but I love Trent Thompson, all right? <laughs> and um, Trent, I hope you never leave Corvallis, okay? But someday you might, okay? And if you did, all those who know you and love you would miss you terribly. Now, let's just say you know Trent, and we're all sitting around in a room together, all right? And Trent's gone. He's long gone. We miss him so much. And all of a sudden, we're in a room together, and we overhear Sufjan Stevens come on, okay? We're like, oh, man, Trent used to love Sufjan Stevens. Somebody walks in with a cup of tried and true, and they're drinking, and they just kind of pass us by, you know? Someone walks in with a really good book wearing Patagonia gear, you know, and then off in the distance, we hear this, like, contagious laugh, right? We might all look at each other, those of us who know Trent, and we might look at each other and smile, and we'd say what? Trent is with us, <laughs> right? Right? We would, we would have that sense. If all those things came together, we're like, oh, man, he's, he's with us. And we get why, don't we? Right? But, you, but, you'd only, but you'd only be with us in a detached sort of way, wouldn't you? Trent wouldn't physically, practically, literally be with us. That would just be manifestations of Trent, right? We, we don't mean to say that, they're act, that he's actually there. And Israel forever thought that some leader was going to come, and through their work, there'd be these little signs and manifestations like, oh, I, I think God's with us, in this sort of detached sort of way. But this was never ultimately the fulfillment at all. It wasn't figurative at all. It wasn't vague. It wasn't detached, right? It, it, we, we pick up on this very clearly in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. This will be on the screen, but I even encourage you to look over in your Bibles if you have them to flip over there. Matthew chapter 1, he's, it says this. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Joseph and Mary are engaged. She's pregnant, and it's not from him. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin, literal virgin, shall conceive and bear a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel. In Isaiah, you don't have to translate that because everyone's reading Hebrew. They knew Hebrew. They're like, oh, God is with us. Here, Matthew is not writing in Hebrew. And so he goes, hey, this is even for you too. I need you to know this, even if you're not an Israelite, which means God with us. You need to know that too. See, Joseph is told that the human life growing inside his soon-to-be wife, Mary, is not, it's not from another human being, but from the heavenly father, okay? So Joseph learns that he will be Jesus' father only secondarily. But Mary is pregnant with the Holy Spirit. See, God is going to be the real father to Jesus. The child that's growing inside of Mary is the very long-awaited Messiah, but he's not just any other person. He's God with us, not in a detached sort of way, in a very real sort of way. This Jesus, this Emmanuel, was both 100% God and 100% man. This is so important. We are told this is who Jesus is. He's the God-man. Forever, this is what theologians have called the hypostatic union, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And you if, if you break down one or the other and you minimize or maximize one over the other, we get into very dangerous places. We really do. It's really important to realize this. So when we see Jesus' life, you, you'll hear him say things like this. He'll say, before Abraham was, I am. Like, I existed before Abraham. And everyone's like, how? how? You're here now. Abraham's, you know, been dead for a long time. You know? We see Jesus forgiving people's sins, which people were really offended by that because they're like, only God can forgive people's sins. We see Jesus having power over sickness and disease and creation even, and even death. We see him know things that only God would know. We, but we also, on the other hand, we see him being completely dependent and submitted to his father. If you read the early part of Matthew, you see him growing and learning and maturing in, in his life early on. We see him being tempted. We see Jesus alone experiencing loneliness and pain and loss and sorrow. He actually sits and eats with people and drinks with people. Guys, Jesus embodies both these realities. They're both extremely present with Jesus. He was fully God, but don't forget that he was fully born. Right? He was human just like you and me. I mean, guys, this morning, can we just like, like you hear me say this, I'm sure, and you're like, yeah, I know. But can we just like wonder at this for a second? I mean, like really like stop and like wonder at it for a second. Can, you, can we just try to think about how mind-blowing this is? God with us. Just think, who is God? Who is God? If you know who God is, the reality of him being with us would, would make a, would, would stand out a little bit. It would impact your life a certain way. Who is this God who is with us? Let me just... Briefly here, indulge me, okay? List out some of these names of God that we see in the Bible and some of his attributes. One of God's names is Jehovah. This is who God is. He's a self-complete being. He's independent, right? He, he, he's, he's the God who says, I am who I am. He's Jehovah Jireh. He's the God who provides. He provided yesterday, and you know he can provide today and tomorrow then. He's Jehovah Shalom. He's the God of peace. In him is peace and he brings peace that you can't find anywhere else. He's Jehovah Rophe. He's Jehovah who heals. 
what that means. He's a God of healing. He's El Shaddai. He's God Almighty. He's the God who's all-sufficient, and he's completely all-powerful. He's Adonai. He's master and Lord. There's no one who rivals him. There's no one equal with him. There's no one above him. He is Lord. He's Elohim. That's one of his names. He has all strength and all power. He is transcendent. He is mighty. He is strong. These are just some of his names. What are some of his attributes? What's he like? You know? Well, we're told he's infinite, meaning he's beyond measurement. You can't not define him by size or amount. Right? He's good. Right? He's the embodiment of perfect goodness. He's kind, he's benevolent, he's full of goodwill towards his creation. We're told God is love. And his love is so constant and unending that it actually moved him towards you, not away from you. He's immutable. All that God is, he always has been. He's perfect, he's unchanging, he's transcendent. He's not simply the highest in all of the created order. He stands above and beyond the created universe. Right, he's just. He's, he always does what's right. He's perfectly holy, and he's equitable in all of his judgments. Right, he always gets it right. He's always fair. He's holy. Right, he's utterly and supremely untainted. Right, he stands apart. There's nobody like him. You won't find anybody like him. He's self-sufficient. He owns all things. So if you have anything, he gave it to you. You can't give him anything. He's self-sufficient. He has it all. He's all-knowing. His knowledge encompasses every possible thing that exists. Nothing is a mystery to God. You can't hide anything from him. He's merciful. His love withholds giving you and I what we actually deserve. He's faithful. He's wise. He's full of grace. We're told God is your greatest comfort. He's a comforter. We could go on. But just think about this. Emmanuel, God with us. Who is God? Who is this God that is with you? This is God with us. Um, Larry King, do you guys know Larry King? Maybe not personally, but you know of Larry King, okay? Uh, he, he's one of the most famous interviewers of all time, probably the most. Um, he was once asked by somebody, if you could interview any person in the world, who would you interview? And he said, Jesus Christ. The person goes, oh, interesting. What's the one question? If you only had one question to ask Jesus, what would you ask him? And he says, were you really born of a virgin? That's what I would ask Jesus. And the reporter went like, why that question? He says, because if it's true, it would define history for me. It would define history for me. If Jesus was really born of a virgin, then he really could and, and would be God with us. God with us, guys, it's, it's not a vague reality. This isn't pie in the sky sort of stuff. This is thought to be the highest miracle in Christianity, not the resurrection from the dead, but instead it's, it's an incarnation. It's, it's God with us. This is the highest miracle in Christianity. It's the craziest, most wonderful miracle. C.S. Lewis called the incarnation the grand miracle. Out of all the claims, if you're exploring Christianity, out of all the claims of Christianity, this is the most unique, it's the most staggering out of them all. 
I mean, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, famously talked about the incarnation. He said, the more you think about the incarnation, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. Like, this is mind-boggling stuff. And I think it's amazing and mind-boggling when you think of who God is and that he would be with us, but maybe the most mind-boggling thing out of all this is, is the word us, right? I mean, yeah, it's crazy. God would become man, but with us? With us. God's not just with the cool people. I'm not saying you're not cool. Maybe you're cool. But he's not just with cool people. He's not just with the wealthy. He's not just with the influential. He's not just with the famous. He's with me. He's with us. He's not just with a select group of people or a certain nationality or a certain class in society. He's with us. He's with you. But no matter how great you think you are or no, no matter how unimportant you think you are, God is with you. He's come near to you. So how will this practically change your life? I honestly listed out like a bunch of things um, and wrote them all out and I had to cut out pages because I was like, I'd have you here for an hour and a half and you'd hate me. So I chose the one that is most pertinent to our passage. Let me show you how it practically changes your life. If you get this, this wraps around your heart. You know what it does? It'll stomp out your fear. It'll stomp out your fear. Because look at what's happening here. In the context of what's happening here in both Matthew 1 and Isaiah 7, what's happening? That the Emmanuel sign is given and fulfilled in both of these places, but it's always in response to fear. Look at Ahaz is terrified. Look up in verse 2. When the house of David, which is talking about Judah, this kingdom that Ahaz reigns, was told Syria is in league with Ephraim. Right? These people are coming together. They're going to you know, mount an attack against you. What does it say? The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Isaiah is so fun to read because he has all this little imagery in here, and you're like, that's weird, you know? <laughs> but it's like a good picture, you know? He's like, he's so afraid, just like the trees in a forest shake in the wind. He's so afraid. But what does he do? The sign's given to dispel his fear, and he rejects it. But then what happens in Matthew chapter 1? Ahaz is actually listed in Matthew chapter 1. He's Joseph's great, great, great times 15 great grandpa. So Joseph is Ahaz's great times 15 grandson. They're like family, basically. So we get Joseph on the scene here. But what happens? This sign is given to Ahaz to dispel his fear that he has for his life. But Joseph's also afraid of losing his reputation. See, Joseph is engaged to Mary, and he finds out that she's pregnant, but not by him, by the Holy Spirit. And so what does he do? He wants to break off the engagement for her sake and his sake, really. Instead, the angel says to, her, to, to Joseph, though, do not be afraid. Marry her. But this is the thing, if he marries her, everybody in that shame honor culture will know that this baby was not born nine or 10 months after they got married. They're just engaged right now. So they can do the math, 
right? They're going to do the math. And they're going to realize that, that either Mary and Joseph had sex before they were married or that Mary cheated on Joseph, right? And so can you just imagine Joseph trying to explain this to his friends? They're like, hey, man, the math just doesn't really add up. And Joseph's like, no, 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 let me explain. She was pregnated by the Holy Spirit, <laughs> right? All of his friends are like, dude, you are so gullible, man. You really think that? They're going to think he's gullible or they're going to think he's crazy. That's what they're going to probably think. And the result of this whole situation for Joseph and Mary would be that they would be shamed. They would be socially excluded. They would be rejected from their community. Right? This was a grievous sort of thing. And so Joseph knows that going ahead with marrying Mary, he will forever be a second-class citizen, essentially. He will have to kiss whatever stellar reputation he thought he had goodbye. This is just step one. This is just Matthew chapter one. In Matthew chapter two, Joseph actually finds out that receiving this Christ child meant that his own life was going to be in danger. So here we have 700 years before the birth of Christ, Ahaz, feel, Ahaz feels fear. And this sign is given to him. And then Joseph, we have 700 years later, right? He's afraid. He's afraid. And for both cases, this promise is given as a sign to them to not be afraid. And the same is true for you and me. The same sign is given for us. He would respond to Joseph's and Ahaz's fear with this sign of the Emmanuel child. And he responds to your fears this morning with the same truth. You're not alone. You are not alone. And, 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 and it's not like there's just another person with you, guys. God is with you. God, remember we just kind of walked through kind of who God is a little bit? God is with you. Do you see what's happening? Do you see what God is calling you into this morning? He's stomping out your fears. Right, do, do you see what he's calling you into? I mean, in... Gosh, is there a more pervasive fear that all of us have in this life than the fear of loneliness? I mean, just the fear of being alone? Doesn't that pervade each one of our lives? Man, um, fear is first manifested when we're kids, isn't it? I mean, I remember as a kid, um, I lived in this small house with my family, and um, in the middle of the night, you know, the floorboards would creak in those cold Montana winters stuff, maybe the heat would kick on a little bit, and I, I don't know how many nights, I was like, someone's in our house, you know, someone's here to kill us, you know, <laughs> and I, the, the way to get to my parents' room, I had to run through the room, I was just scared that somebody was in, okay, that was like how it was set up, so it was awful, but I would still, you know, I was like, I'd rather die on the way or in my parents' room than in my own room, so I would stand at the door, and I would wait, and I would, you know, get up the courage, and I would bolt across our house, and I would go into my parents' room, and I would just be panting, and I would get down in front of my mom's face, I've told some of you, and I would just get this close to my mom's face, and I never said anything. I don't know why. I just never said anything, <laughs> and so my mom would open her eyes when she'd feel the breath, you know, and uh, she'd see my face, and she'd freak out, so I'm afraid, she's afraid, okay? It finally calmed down, and I would be able to sleep almost instantly after that somehow. Why? Because I'm in the presence of my parents. I'm going to be all right, you know? You guys ever feel like that? Being in the presence of my parents was a powerful thing. I read this week about Corey Ten Boom, who lived um, during the Holocaust. She's a believer. 
She said that uh, when she was a little girl, her father used to tuck her into bed at night, and he would talk and pray with her. She says, then he laid his big hand on my little face. That's what he would do. And she described how later, when she was imprisoned in this brutal concentration camp, she would ask God to tuck her in and to lay his hand on her face. She said, that would bring me peace, and I would be able to sleep. She wrote this in her book, Each New Day. She even gets it as an adult. The reality of God being with us, it wasn't detached. It was real. See, guys, loneliness is a powerful fear that affects all of us. Uh, This will be on the screen. Um, C.S. Lewis said this once. He says, we are born helpless. As soon as we are fully conscious, we discover loneliness. We need others physically, emotionally, and intellectually. We need them if we are to know anything, even ourselves. We can all admit, right, loneliness is a powerful fear that wrecks every single one of us. If you've done something wrong, you've sinned in some way, what do you do? You hide. You feel shame. And you have this fear that if people knew me for who I really was, right, they wouldn't love me. They wouldn't receive me. So what do you do? You walk around with these friendships and you feel alone because you're hiding. You could be in a crowded room and talk to a bunch of people and you could still feel alone. Right? You want to be known. You want to be seen. You want to be loved. Maybe you carry in life certain burdens and stresses that you just think are yours to carry and no one understands those burdens, so you feel alone. You feel like you don't have any help. We don't want to end up alone physically, emotionally. And so right now we're like, man, this, this month, if I could just have someone to share the holidays with, you know, if I could have a a girlfriend this time of year, that'd be awesome. You know, a a spouse would be great. And we think that's going to solve our fear of loneliness that we have. It's this fear we have. I even read this this week in a a psychology article that it's it's thought that almost half of marriages, in half of marriages, uh, the husband and wife, one of them feels lonely. So even they got the person they thought would make them not feel lonely and they live with them and they might even have a great marriage, but they still kind of battle with loneliness. See, this is an experience I think even this month a lot of too many people experience during the holidays. But guys, Advent, Christmas, the message of Christmas holds out this promise and says, you don't have to be alone. That space that's created in your life, whether it's in a fractured relationship with your, your, your dad or your mom or someone else in your family or in your marriage or whatever, in a friendship, whatever it is, there's this space that's created. It's a space of like loneliness. And God has come to fill that space. He's entered into that space. See, you might be sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, Josh, um, uh, God being with me, that's a good thing. Okay, I get it. It helps. Um, but I really, I really just want my kids to come back home. You know? Um, I, I want God to bring back my mom and my dad. You know? Um, I, like I said earlier, I just want someone to share the holidays with, someone who, who will love me in that way. 
I just want to say those are really good desires. Those aren't bad desires at all. Those are great desires. But you need to know that any human loneliness that you will ever experience and your fear of experiencing that especially is only a shadow of the sun that you're actually longing for. Any, any loneliness you think you have or you think that you can solve, it, it will never fix it because the loneliness that you and I have is only meant to be filled in that space with God. It's all pointing to the greatest sort of loneliness or detachment from the relationship that you were made for. It's to be with God. And this will change your life, guys. It, it'll completely change your life when you realize that God has come and filled that space. I think one of the most powerful experiences of this we're told about is in uh, 2 Timothy 4. This will be on the screen. But Paul, he's following Jesus, and uh, he's up against his own, the death of his life, and he says this, at my first defense, when he has to actually stand up and give a defense for his life, right? Because he's, he's following Jesus, and he's going to be killed for it. He says, no one stood by me. Everyone deserted me. All of his so-called friends. I was utterly alone. But what does he say? The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Emmanuel wasn't vagueness to Paul. It was real life. See, this is Christianity, and there's nothing else in the world like this, you guys. These three words not only tell you what the meaning of Christmas is, it tells you what the purpose of Jesus is. He is with us. He is with us. Do you see? God is going with you into the battle that you're facing. Well, whatever it is that you're facing that you're fearful of, you're never facing it alone. That's the promise given to Joseph. That's the promise given to Ahaz. That's why I, I, I called this series All is Calm. I didn't call it All is Calm because I'm trying to paint this picture that like the world is just rosy and perfect, right? No, it's so far from that, isn't it? Like the circumstances you and I face, when we look out at the world, it seems anything but calm. But the point is, if you and I get, if this gets a hold of your life a little bit, there can be a calmness that you experience day in and day out in the midst of the chaos. When you know this, I mean, some of you are terribly suffering this morning. We see in Christ, the God-man, that there's a comfort in our suffering that's unparalleled that you can't find anywhere else. I mean, anybody who's ever suffered knows this all too well, that suffering often produces loneliness. Just think about it. when you're happy and things are going well in your life, you feel that you're a part of the human race, right? You feel like you're a part of everybody. But when something bad happens and real suffering comes in, it feels lonely. And people around you, they could be sympathetic towards you, and that's nice, but it doesn't seem to comfort you in any way. But if somebody actually comes along who's been through what you've been through, and they can speak into your life, and they can empathize with you, that, that brings a form of comfort that other people can't give, right? There's a comfort that you can have. This is on the screen, but this talks about Jesus, right? The incarnate Jesus. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. Guys, Jesus is infinitely able to comfort you. Have you been betrayed in your life? Right? Have you been lonely? Have you ever been destitute? Or have you ever faced death? He has. He has. 
Guys, you might say, you don't understand, I prayed to God and God ignored my prayer. Well, do you remember Jesus when he cried out in the garden of Gethsemane, Father, may this cup be taken from me, and he was turned down. Jesus knows the pain of unanswered prayer. You're like, well, I feel like God has abandoned me. What do you think Jesus meant when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And see, the message of Christmas in part is that God has been all the places that you have been. The, whatever darkness you've walked through, he's walked through it and he's gone even to the darker places. And it's not just that he's sympathetic or even empathetic in your suffering, he has the power to do something about it. And maybe in his eternal wisdom, it doesn't mean that he's gonna bring back what you lost or he's gonna give you exactly what you want, but it does mean that whatever it is that you're going to walk through, he's gonna walk through it with you. And you're not doing it alone. And this will do something to your heart, you guys. Because we know we're walking towards this day. It's on the screen. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. As one day when the second advent comes, your fear will be fully stomped out once and for all. But what is it telling you that's the reality that you'll experience that will accomplish that? It's God being with you. That's it. Right? You, you, why? Why will you, why will this change your life? Because you will know without a doubt forever, like in an unveiled, unhindered, perfect, beautiful reality sort of way, you will know without a doubt in this future reality that God is with you. That he is with you. Guys, here's the thing. Uh, there's so many truths that we want to believe are true. Uh, we might even say that they're true, but we actually fail to believe they're real. I was thinking about this this week. It's like the idea of Santa, you know? Even for adults, don't lie. Okay, we, we all love Santa movies, don't we? If you don't, just be quiet, okay? It's fine. <laughs> um, but as kids, we get obsessed with Santa, Right? We want Santa to be real. We want this whole reality of him traveling around the world at night and visiting all these different people in these different homes and, and giving us presents and, and knowing us and if we're good or bad and all this kind of stuff, right? We kind of, as a kid, we like want that to be true. And then you, you, you grow up and you become an adult to some degree or a young adult or a kid um, and you get to a place where you're like, Santa's not real, but you still watch the movies and as you watch the movies, you're like, wouldn't it be kind of cool? I mean, wouldn't it be cool if this happened, if this was real? You know, we, we like the idea. You'd probably think it was sweet if you found out it was. See, I think in a sense, God as Emmanuel might feel like Santa. Right? We hear about it. We like the idea of it. You might even be a kid this morning and you actually say it's true. Okay? But deep down, it feels like Santa. It's something that we only dream about. Like, wouldn't that be nice? You guys, uh, this is not mental gymnastics. It's not what we're doing. This isn't just theology to study or to debate. This is real. This is real. This is 
reality. This is reality. And when the reality of Emmanuel sinks down and entangles its roots into your soul, that'll do something with you. That'll do something to you. That'll change you in a certain, in a certain way, a lot of ways, none less of which than it is that your fear will be dispelled. So how do you let this sink in? How does this shape your whole life? Well, I'll tell you how to do it. It doesn't happen through willpower. You don't walk out of here this morning, you're like, yes, I'm, I'm going to believe, you know, that God is with me, you know. All it's going to do is frustrate you, honestly. It doesn't mean that you go out and you try to find all these evidences that Jesus really came, although that's really helpful. I love apologetics personally, so helpful. You know, look up archaeology, all that kind of stuff, that's great, okay? But it won't do that to your heart. How will this actually sink in? Well, it only happens through meditative wonder. It only happens through wonder. It involves you sitting down and asking yourself the question, what if the gospel were really true? Like, what if this was real? What if God really was with us in Jesus? What if God really was my ally and not my enemy? What if every assurance of the gospel is true for me right here and right now today? What if it were? And let's just say it actually is. What if you just wondered at it for 15 minutes today? What if you just sat down and you thought about this, that God is with you, that God has become a man? He's fully God and fully man. What would this do? How would this change your life? I bet it would free you in different ways. I bet it would give you peace. It might give you courage. It might get rid of your fear. Guys, this is like the domino that knocks all the other dominoes over. It's, if you play pool, it's like the cue ball that hits all the other balls into a different spot. Right? This, is that, this is that cue ball. This is that domino. This will not only change your life, it'll change your heart towards God because you realize that God's come near to you. Your relationship with him changes. It's not stoic and mechanical and dry and academic. It moves you into being a person who's actually a lover. What would happen if you stopped treating God like a theory more like a reality. See, if God and Jesus would move heaven and earth to be near to us and never leave us, then I think he can help us do that. Let's pray that this morning. Let's pray that this would, would not just be a head thing, but a heart thing. That you would know this deep in your bones, what Christmas is really all about. That God is with us. Father, I pray this morning um, that you would do what only you can do, God, that you would take something that maybe a lot of us in this room have thought about for years or maybe for somebody who's never thought about this before, God, that you would take these things and you would, um, you would take them from vague, disconnected, just pie in the sky, that would be nice sort of thinking into a place where we see and understand and experience the realness of your nearness. God, that you are God who's come for us in Christ. And I pray, God, that that would, that would affect us today and, and cause us to live differently this week, Lord. We'd be people who, um, when we face fear, Lord, we know that you're with us and that would dispel it. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.